0: From LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.
1: From Louisville Public Media. If you get a job working for the state, you might have to have anti-harassment training, or you might not. If you're accused of harassment on the job, you might be sent to the training then. If you do it again, you might be sent back to have the same training that obviously didn't work before. Why do you think it's gonna be more effective the second time through? If you're a political pointy, your training starts with a message from Governor Matt Bevin.
0: If your mother wouldn't approve of it, don't do it. It's kind of that simple. It's not that complicated. It's obviously not that simple. And when we kind of push it aside or trivialize it like that, like, oh, it's simple. You should know what to do or what not to do. Obviously, people don't. Right. And it's not accounting for the stories where people come forward and they're like, hey, I was made to feel uncomfortable or targeted because of this. And it's like, oops, falls outside the legal definition of harassment.
1: WFPL's Ashley Stevens has been looking into how the state handles harassment among its employees. She joins us to talk about what she found today on ReCut. I'm Joni's Franklin.
0: I guess it was last November, Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, they enlisted the help of all the WFPL journalists to request all the sexual harassment complaints from the different state agencies for the past five years. And one of the things that I found as I started going through these were these certificates from anti-harassment training. They were like little certificates in people's personnel files if they had been uh, offenders, essentially, if they had harassed people. So they were sent back to anti-harassment training, and some people had two or three of these certificates. So I was just curious what was happening here, what the curriculum was like, because it was one of those things that it was pretty common to see in the outcome of a harassment complaint that somebody would be sent to anti-harassment training, which is put on by the personnel cabinet. So I did an open records request and I was like, hey, could I could I get a look at your curriculum? What are people going through? What are they teaching? And um, I was curious, as we are sort of in the midst of the Me Too movement right now, there's been a lot of discussion about what works when it comes to preventing sexual harassment, what doesn't work. And I just wanted to see what experts thought about the training that the personnel cabinet puts on for state employees and whether it was sort of up to snuff, if you will. So that's that's essentially what the story is about. Okay. What did you find out? One of the things I think from the top that people need to, to know is that there are a lot of inconsistencies about who takes this training and when from agency to agency about what people call sexual harassment, how people respond to it, um, the, the different punishments for offenders, if you will. Um, so the personnel cabinet, they provide training, they provide resources, but um, they have a, an agreed upon, this is a legal definition of what harassment is. Um, this is our policy on it with, with regards to you, you can't retaliate against people. So there are some consistencies, but by and large, there are a lot of uh, inconsistencies. Um, I received this lesson guide, and I was like, cool, so how often do people take this, or when are they required to take it? And he's like, uh, he being Chris Johnson, who is the executive director of the personnel cabinet, he's like, oh, well, it depends.
1: There's no uniform standard timeline for Uh, employees to to take this course necessarily. We're working with about 30,000 employees and and a number of different cabinets and state agencies. And so whether or not this training is mandatory varies based on state agency. Some agencies mandate this on a biannual basis every two years. Some mandate it annually annually. There are others uh, who uh, have an employee, a new employee, within uh, the first 60 days uh, of becoming a, uh, an employee with the Commonwealth. They're required to take the, the training, but may not be required to take that again. Uh, I will say every employee, uh, anybody who is in a supervisory capacity is required uh, to take the course uh, without question. So what's the training like?
0: Sure. So I actually have the lesson guide right here, and I was going to flip through a couple things with you. And so it's a general, really broad curriculum. It covers things like racism, sexism, religious discrimination, ableism, ageism. What we're looking at are, it's a, a slideshow. Um, they make it very apparent. They, they actually have a, a slide that pops up multiple times that says harassment. It's not just about sex anymore. So this is on a number of slides. So we're, we're taking a real broad view here. Um. So I'm
1: trying to squeeze in a lot of different we're, we're, subject matters. Yes,
0: and it's a it's a three hour training. Um. So introduction. You establish rapport. You welcome participants. You introduce yourself, and um, here are the basic learning objectives. So um, during this workshop, we're going to define harassment. We're going to take a look at the Personnel Cabinet's policy statement on harassment prevention. We're going to define unwelcome conduct, a hostile environment, agency liability. There's a lot spent on how much money. It costs various agencies when harassment occurs, retaliation, and complaint filing options. So, you know, it's kind of, it's it's just the facts, I guess is the best way to put it. And then there is a 27-minute video. It's called, um, it's about respect, defining harassment in a diverse workplace. And I think the last time it was updated was probably 1994. This is the, the training, so. All right. Hey, hold up a minute. Yeah? I've got a little bit of an
1: HR emergency happening here. Can you ask everyone to start looking through the packets I left in the Western Conference Room? I'll be there in 10 or 15. The Western Conference Room? Second floor, remember? We recently painted all the conference rooms to reflect the company's diversity. Each room has a theme. Oh yeah, the Western Room. We've been pretty
0: busy down in shipping lately. I bet.
1: Listen, I'll be there soon. Thanks. Okay. This is the training that state employees receive. Correct. Most state employees. Most state employees.
0: What I think is interesting, though, is that records show, the records that were requested by the Center for Investigative Reporting, that there were 250 formal sexual harassment complaints over the last five years. And this is a number that experts agree probably is only a portion of the actual incidents that have occurred. And we're seeing this more and more, again, as the the, the Me Too movement has, has come along and made people rethink, OK, what does a harassment-free workplace look like? So that's where I wanted to push the story a little a little bit further, not just like, oh, the curriculum's kind of broad or bare bones. It's it's how does it measure up to what we know about what works and what doesn't work when it comes to sexual harassment training? So I spoke with um Alyssa Perry, she is a professor from Columbia University, and she actually studies sexual harassment training effectiveness. It's still kind of an emerging field of research, but there are some consistent findings that point to potential problems with the Kentucky Personnel Cabinet's anti-harassment training. So the first big one is paying attention to context and workplace culture. It's making sure that whatever people learn in the context of the training is reinforced back on the job so you can see a transfer from what happened in the training to what's happening on the job. The only thing I would say is a lot of training programs, if you think about just the training and you don't consider the context in which you're implementing that training, then it's hard to imagine that that training can be effective. This is a really big challenge for the personnel cabinet because they do a variety of jobs. We're talking forest rangers. We're talking office admins in Frankfurt. We're talking people who work with the Department of Corrections. And those are obviously very different workplaces, people doing very different things and having very different interactions. So. The concept of putting together something that's going to work for all of them is is a big challenge.
1: Are they able in any way? Did he talk about how they measure if this is successful in any way?
0: They, they don't. Um, so they don't have pre-tests or post-tests, which is something that I requested in my open records request. And this is something that didn't make it into the story, but something that Perry said truly is the only way to measure what people learn in the training is, okay, this is my understanding coming in, and this is my knowledge coming out. But one of the things that Perry found, which I think is is interesting, is that, um, you know, our state's three-hour anti-harassment training, it's very broad, but when instructors do talk about sexual harassment, it's mostly restricted to, as I mentioned, legal definitions, common types of sexual harassment. So, you know, if I, I reach out and touch you in a way that is, is inappropriate, then that is harassment, or if I... Um, you know, gawk at a coworker—that's inappropriate. So we have kind of like the basic definitions, and then a lot of a lot of um, emphasis on agency liability. Um, and Perry says that this type of training sends away people sends people away with some useful information, but her research has found that these legal heavy harassment overviews have almost no effect on people's long term behavior or attitudes about sexual harassment. So the training that we're looking at here, like many anti harassment trainings. It can impart knowledge. You can come away with like, oh, it costs the state this much when people harass other people, or the legal definition is this. But this three hour broad overview training, it doesn't really impact people's behaviors or attitudes.
1: What stands out about this whole subject matter to you? Like what is there something that surprised you or
0: Yeah. So there are 250 sexual harassment complaints that have been filed over the past five years. And of those complaints I started going through and I was checking out okay what kind of behavior are we looking at here and it's behavior that Perry classifies as ambiguous behavior so these are things that fall outside the legal definition of sexual harassment which is covered over and over and over again in this training but these are things that fall into kind of a gray area it's things that it's dependent on tone or maybe the relationship that you have with the person or the power differential so these are things that are a little trickier to to, to quantify, to put on a, a slideshow, you know, it's, it's going to require maybe more in-depth training or maybe longer than three hours to cover that kind of thing. So um, some examples that I found, um, sending gifts to a coworker So, you know, I'm sitting here with Laura and Jonice and you guys are, are good friends. So if one of you sent a, a gift to the other, you're probably not going to be like, wow, I feel harassed by this. But in some of these instances, it was a boss sending a gift to a subordinate over and over and over again, and her saying, oh, I I don't want this. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. here it is again. Suggestive text messages, so things that kind of fall into a gray area, delivering handwritten notes to another employee, um, spreading sexual rumors. That one I felt like was a little more on the nose, but that does fall outside the legal definition of sexual harassment. So the bulk of these complaints, the 250 that I took a look at, a, a lot of them fall into this, this category of ambiguous behavior. And that's something that, again, this legal heavy overview isn't going to get into. And it's not going to prevent people's behaviors or attitudes when it comes to that.
1: So the training that Kentucky does now, uh, you said, the expert you talked to, you said it was kind of broad, sort of I don't know, generic, if you will. Um, so what does good training look like?
0: So that's one of the things that they are still Figuring out at this point, again, this is a relatively new area of research, and it's one that people are starting to take more seriously right now. So there's a lot of movement in the field currently. Um, so pre post-tests are important. The concept of talking with people who are already invested in the culture of that workplace about the problems that they see on a day-to-day basis or within their interactions and building a curriculum out from that is really important. And then something else that's important is kind of scenario based. So maybe instead of sitting down with a bunch of people watching a video that hasn't been updated since the 1990s, acting out scenarios and things that you would actually do in your job. So it's not going to be helpful, like let's say that I'm a forest ranger to do things that are based necessarily in a cube farm. Those aren't the interactions. It's not authentic to what you do on a day to day basis. So those are some of the things that are, are important. Also, spending some time talking through these gray areas, this ambiguous behavior, so the the gift giving, the handwritten notes, those sorts of things. Um, those are some of the things that Perry mentioned in putting together a good curriculum would be important. But again, it's it's really based on the culture that's already present in the workplace. Um, so. Looking forward, though, the personnel cabinet is is looking to make some changes, which is something that I do want to st- want to stress. So in December 2017, so this is December of last year, they organized a course focused on educating the state's political appointees about sexual harassment. And it begins with a video of Governor Matt Bevan, And in it, he tells viewers, if your mother wouldn't approve of it, don't do it. It's really that simple. He also says that there is an ancient Chinese proverb, which he quotes in the video:
1: "The fish rots
0: from the head down." The opposite is true as well. The fish. The fish. So. The, the fish rots from the head down, but it also works the other way. So that's set, what I'm. I'm really like <laughs> we're, we're going for this concept. Like I get yeah. the, the head down,
1: like your thoughts, like maybe bad <laughs> thoughts no, or negative. It's, it's no? like the
0: top of an organization. So, like, oh, if people, I'm thinking yeah. of the actual fish. <laughs>
1: I was thinking of an actual fish also apparently standing upright on its fins. I just want, I want that on the
0: record. What I think we were going for is that within each department, it's the attitudes of the people at the top. So you need to take sexual harassment seriously, but it also works the other way. So people from the bottom need to take, sex, everybody needs to take sexual harassment seriously is the gist of that. I got it. Yeah, now it
1: makes sense. When I took the fish out of it, um, now I get it.
0: So So they, uh, they they put together this training for political appointees in December and I asked Johnson whether they had intentions of maybe rolling this out more broadly for all employees to take it. And he said that they were exploring options and they've already given the course to other state agencies, though this was only on an as requested basis, and he didn't have numbers of how many agencies had requested that. So that's that's kinda where we're at right now.
1: Recut is produced by me and Laura Ellis. Our executive producer is Erica Peterson. Our theme music is by Kojin Tashiro. Special thanks today to reporter Ashley Stevens. You can read Ashley's story at WFPL.org. For more information about our show, visit recut.org. I'm Joni Franklin. Thanks for listening.
0: Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility and Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.